0: It's Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories, a retold episode. My name is Brian. These episodes are when we uh, put back up an episode from the back catalog that maybe pertains to something we've been talking about on the show recently. And very recently, we talked specifically about how music history would have been different if Rick James had not dodged the draft. And that's because he had a band that was poised for success. And in that band was Neil Young. So we did get to speak a little bit about Neil Young recently. Reminded me of an episode all the way back, episode seventy-one, nearly a year ago, where we got to talk about Neil Young and his very unique, uh, his, his very unique sense of self the way in which Neil Young made a lot of decisions that were just for him, and a story that becomes a really fascinating love story between a father and a son that I really, really love. So without further ado, if you've heard it before, hear it again. If you're hearing it for the first time, welcome. Uh, I hope you enjoy it. This, we're going back to December of 2021. It's a rock and roll bedtime stories hosted just by me. Murdoch was out this week, um, but it is the story of Neil Young versus Geffen Records, originally episode 71. Now it's is a rock and roll bedtime story retold. Enjoy. Uh, we got to take it to a whole different level with an artist who maybe even more than Bob Dylan has defined his career by waiting until everyone, and when I say everyone, I mean fans and friends and record labels, when everyone thought they knew what to expect. And then he takes the sharpest left turn possible. We're talking about Neil Young. Now, I want to be honest, I've never quite known what to think of Neil Young. Uh, I'm a huge built-to-spill fan. They're big fans of Neil Young. So like through their lens, I've sort of understood the appeal to a certain degree, but I've never found it that great myself. What I didn't realize for a very long time is that that is exactly what Neil Young wants. What Neil Young wants is for everybody to not quite know what to think of him. A <laughs> couple things if you've never followed his career. Number one, he's amazingly prolific. Depending on how you count them, Neil Young may actually have more studio albums than Bob Dylan. The guy boasts like 41 studio albums. Uh, Dylan's like a little less than that, maybe 39. Plus, Neil Young has eight live albums, four soundtracks. And not only does he have all of that, the number two thing you need to know about Neil Young, which I did not know, is that he is a legit filmmaker. The guy literally has an alter ego that he reco- or makes films under. Uh, he goes with the name Bernard Shakey when he does that. And I'm not just talking about producing concert films. I mean, that's sort of normal, right? Like the artist gets executive production credits or something on a, a live show. He's done that, but he also made a sci-fi comedy that served to comment on the cold war and had Dennis Hopper in it. I couldn't make this stuff up now. We also, there's like random colorful details you probably know, if I pressed you, about Neil Young, like the fact that he's famously name-dropped in one of the most famous southern rock anthems of all time, Sweet Home Alabama, where Leonard Skinner claimed they don't need him around, and that had to do specifically because he was very outspoken about condemning racism and some of those things in the South, as you might remember. Now, like a lot of these recent episodes where we tackle these massive personalities, there's no way I'm going to be able to deliver you a single episode where we really even scratch the surface of the strange and brilliant career of Neil Young. It is bonkers that you can get lost. It's intimidating. It was overwhelming to dig through the research. So I tried to narrow it down to this one specific question to keep us focused here. Is it true that Neil Young was actually sued by Geffen Records for making a synth pop album that sucked? Now, the answer is not technically, but yeah, sort of. Now, let's do some quick Neil history before we get where we're going. Neil's Canadian. He's born in the 40s. He has polio in the 50s, and he starts playing bands in the 60s. Drops out of high school to play music, in fact. And the first success he has is in this band called The Squires, and they have this song called The Sultan. actually has a little bit of success. And while he's in it, he meets this guy uh, on the road named Stephen Stills. So, of course, that becomes important later. He also meets someone uh, around this time named Joni Mitchell. And they become friends, so that name might sound familiar. Uh, and they eventually break up, and he's working on other musical projects. He writes a song that goes on to be a hit for the Guess Who. I don't know if you remember this song, but it is called Flying on the Ground is Wrong. And if you want more on the Guess Who, we actually did an episode a while back called Rock and Roll versus Stuttering. Uh, we've got some good Guess Who stuff in there, so check that out. But uh, he then joins this band in 1966 called The Mina Birds. This wasn't a band I was familiar with, but these guys actually get a record deal with Motown Records and they go in to record their first record. And th- this is this is what the Mina Birds sounded like. I mean, it's a jam. This song is great. Do you recognize that voice? Do you know who that lead singer is? Neil Young used to play guitar in a band where Rick James was the lead singer. And these guys were going to have the real deal. They were going to maybe be a big a big band. And what happened is Neil or, uh, Rick James ends up getting arrested for deserting the U.S. Navy. Another detail that I had absolutely no idea about. Uh, yeah, he went AWOL, the Navy Reserve grabs him, and that pretty much breaks up the band. So Neil Young and the bass player in the minor Birds named Bruce Palmer decide at this point that they're going to move to L.A., but they need cash to do it. So they take all of the instruments that have been left behind by this group, and they pawn them, and they buy what a vehicle that will get them to L.A., and, and what they come up with on their budget is a Pontiac hearse. <laughs> so, can, can we acknowledge the magical aura that is around Neil Young? Like, look, we're in the mid-60s and we've already casually name-dropped like half a dozen major players. Uh, this guy seems to show up at the right time and at the right place a lot. And that's literally what happens in LA. The way the story goes, and it seems to check out, is that Bruce and Neil are literally driving down Sunset Boulevard one day in LA. And Neil's like, wait, I recognize that guy over there. Is that that guy I, I met back on tour named Steven Stills? And it is. Sure enough, Steven Stills is hanging out with this guy, Richie Foray. And this chance encounter gets the four of those dudes, Bruce, Neil, Richie, and Steven, into a band called Buffalo Springfield. You probably know at least a little bit about Buffalo Springfield. Uh, they're in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, for crying out loud. They have some success, but they disintegrate fairly quickly. They make three albums. Really, only one of them has the organic fun story. The rest of them become these sort of fragmented pastiches of the band relationships and you know, as they get strained. And part of the strain on the band, and I'm kind of putting my own interpretation here, but it's that Neil Young is not big on perfectionism, and the rest of the guys are. Now, this becomes an important thing to note because this sort of becomes the shadow that hangs over Neil. Long story short, Neil ends up going solo. Now, of course, he'll later rejoin Stephen Stills and demand title with Crosby, Stills, and Nash. That's why they become Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young for a while. Uh, He will become known alongside several different bands that he puts together at different times. The biggest one that you probably will recognize is Crazy Horse. But once you get to the 70s, Neil Young is just, all he does is demand his own way. One of the best examples of this, just to like again, cement this idea of how Neil starts to shape his career and how he just basically says, This is what I want and this is what you've got to give me. This centers around Harvest. Now, if you know anything about Neil Young, you probably know a little bit about Harvest. This is the record from the early 70s, his fourth album. And parts of it were recorded basically like almost on a whim while he's in Nashville. He goes to Nashville to be on the Johnny Cash Show. And there's this studio owner who just opened a studio in Nashville, and he wants to have a meal with Neil. Takes him to a meal and says, you know, trying to, like, convince him, hey, you should record your next album in my place. And Neil is like, cool. And the guy's like, really? And he's like, yeah, how about tonight? So... He literally goes to the studio in Nashville and lays some stuff down. Later, he ends up having these arguments about how it's going to be recorded, what what's going to be on it, and he purposely does a bunch of weird stuff, stuff that always confused me. Because when I came to Harvest without reading about it, I was like, "What is this album?" Because like you might know this, there's a live track in the middle of it, and at one point they were going to be like, I think they were thinking it was going to be a whole live album, and he like keeps this one live track, and then he does the stuff he records in Nashville, and then he records a couple of tracks with the London Symphony Orchestra. I mean, it doesn't sound on paper like it would be good or that people would want to listen to this. But this becomes the best-selling album of 1972. And frankly, it freaks Neil out, because I don't think Neil, I think Neil sort of, I don't want to say self-sabotage, but he's not doing these things where he's like, this is how we're going to get to the next level. I mean, a weird tangent here to, tie these things together is strange I guess but I'm I'm reading the Will Smith autobiography that just came out and that guy always was doing things to get to the next like he literally had people in his life who would help him like map out this is how we're gonna this is how we're gonna get to be the next thing and this is how you're gonna get to be the biggest movie star in the world I don't think Neil's ever doing this he's like purposely being obtuse he's almost trying to not be accepted popular and famous uh This is just one example. This whole Harvest thing is one example. He has this daring to destroy his own success, and it sets the stage for what we're going to see a decade later when we get to the heart of the story. But as for what happens over the next 10 years so that we don't leave a big gap, I told you he was prolific. He records a new record every year. And he's fascinating during this period because he simultaneously becomes a pillar of folk and country. Like, he's in The Last Waltz performing with Joni Mitchell and alongside Bob Dylan. But eventually, by the end of the decade, he sort of embraces punk rock to such a degree that Johnny Rotten goes on to cover one of his songs on a radio performance. Fun fact, I just learned this. The release of Martin Scorsese's movie, The Last Waltz, the concert, was delayed. Do you know why it was delayed? Scorsese was forced to re-edit so that he could obscure... I don't know exactly what that means. Obscure the lump of cocaine that was clearly visible hanging from Young's nose during his performance of Helpless. So there you go. Uh, Speaking of being punk, though, remember how I mentioned that there was this sci-fi comedy that Neil Young made under another name? You know who his main collaborators were on that film? Devo. He has this period where he just hangs out with Devo all the time. And he spends $3 million of his own money on this production. Now, it's $3 million in 1980, but the late 70s, early 80s. It translates in 2020 dollars to almost $12 million. That's how much money he's spending on his pet projects. It shows you how successful he is and how reckless he is. So, as this process is going on, Neil also sets out on this lengthy Russ Never Sleeps tour. And. This tour, you can read all kinds of stuff about this tour. This is sort of where Neil hits his, I don't know if I want to say it's the pinnacle of his career because he has such a long career. It's at least one of the first high high points here. And he does crazy stuff on this. First, he tours a bunch of new material, like stuff that hasn't been recorded. Each show is half solo and half Crazy Horse. And when Crazy Horse comes out, it purposely gets really loud. It's well-documented. You can read all sorts of stuff. That the subsequent album that comes out of this and the film that gets made about it, which is another film that Neil has a hand in, are early touch points for what becomes the grunge movement. The birth of Nirvana and Pearl Jam more than a decade later, partly due to how Neil uses distortion on his guitars during this period. And the shining example of this, of course, is a track that you probably know called Hey Hey, My My, or Into the Black. Another fun fact about this uh this song is that during the uh while they were making that movie with Devo, Neil actually records a version of this song with Devo, and I believe Bougie sings the song instead of Neil in that version. Also, did you know that this is the song that births the phrase, it's better to burn out than to fade away? Legend goes that that phrase is used in Kurt Cobain's suicide note, but it also has just sort of been co-opted by pop culture. It comes out of Hey, Hey, my, my bottom line. This whole effort puts Neil Young at the very top. Again, readers and critics of Rolling Stone vote him artist of the year for 1979. Along with the who they select Russ never sleeps as album of the year. They vote him male vocalist of the year. The village voice names. Russ never sleeps as the year's winner of a poll that they have that surveys nationwide critics. And then here is how we get to what I really want to talk about today. This success positions Neil Young to have what he wants. And I think if you've listened to this up to this point, you know what Neil Young wants. He's illustrated it his entire life and his entire career up to this point. So in 1982, Neil Young leaves the record label he spent his entire career on, Reprise Records. And he signs with Geffen Records. Now, I've mentioned the David Geffen documentary that's on Netflix on this show before. I know I have. And if you've watched it, you know that the band that launches David Geffen's career is Crosby, Stills, and Nash. So, Neil is with a familiar face. And he asks for two things when this label talk happens. First, he wants money. Like a million dollars an album. And... He wants that legendary mythical concept that artists have longed for as long as they have existed. He wants total creative control. Remember, you can support the show on Patreon. Yeah, all you gotta do, go to patreon.com slash rock and roll bedtime stories, make a monthly contribution. Oh, you know, not a bunch. doesn't have to be a lot. And you can get things like special bonus episodes from us. You can see the scripts and the notes that we have. Uh, You can even get on regular Zooms to chat with us about your favorite rock and roll stories and help us plan episodes. All you got to do, head to the Patreon page, patreon.com slash rock and roll bedtime stories. So, permission to get a little sappy this episode? Thank you. It obviously goes without saying that if you've ever listened to the show before, music, very important to me. uh, Very important to Murdoch. We're both dads, too. And so it's a fascinating chemistry to watch those two loves combine. There is this constant delicate calculation in trying to, like, share the love of music, but also shepherd a small person towards their own understanding and connection, right? So... Like, for instance, when tucking in my youngest tonight, I was very proud to hear him humming Bowie's Where Have All the Good Times Gone, right? Uh, (laughs) I took personal pride in that. But we spend a lot of time, he and I, just talking about and listening to music together. And as he continues to age, he brings thoughts and ideas, and he brings bands bands and rappers and all sorts of stuff to the table, right? So if I allow myself to think long enough about this idea of father, child, and music and how the three of them come together... I'm always reminded of a certain theatrical moment, a, a movie moment that has stuck with me since I was, frankly, just a kid myself. You've probably seen this flick. Uh, Mr. Holland's Opus, have you seen this? This was a big movie in my household growing up. 1995, Richard Dreyfuss in the lead. And here's the one-line description online. A frustrated composer finds fulfillment as a high school music teacher. And in fairness, that is basically it. Guy tries to go and write music professionally, never makes it. His sort of fallback is that he's going to be a high school teacher, and he ends up spending his life inspiring others to love music. But there's this dramatic irony that happens in the story. Mr. Holland, who spent his life surrounded by and obsessed with music, and then teaches hundreds of kids he's not related to, to also love music, realizes at a certain point in the movie that his toddler son is deaf. So the one kid he would probably most want to have this part of a relationship with, he's never going to be able to affect in this way. And it's heartbreaking. And there's a scene in this movie that still makes me tear up when Mr. Holland plays Beautiful Boy by John Lennon with a student orchestra and he learns the sign language for his, his, at this point in the movie, I think teenage son. And he makes the song about him. Now, you're probably wondering why I'm starting to get teary talking about a movie that is a quarter of a century old and seems to have nothing to do with neil young Uh, but this idea of a father and a son finding connection through music becomes the crux of the next part of the story now you remember i i told you that russ never sleeps puts neil young back at the top of the game people love him critics like him he makes money he puts out one last album for reprise called reactor and then he signs to geffen because they tell him he can have creative control now, the first thing he hands over to Geffen is a group of songs for a project he calls Island in the Sun. It's recorded in May of 1982 in Hawaii. And according to Young, it was, quote, a tropical thing all about sailing, ancient civilizations, islands, and water. And Geffen says no. They don't like it. So, you know, if you're Neil Young, what do you do? Do you... Do you Dive deeper into distorted music? Do you return to the folk songs that first fueled your eyes? No. If you're Neil Young, you go back and you deliver to Geffen what popularly becomes known as your synth pop record. You deliver a little record called Trans. This record drops December 29th of 1982. And while it's become known as his synth pop record, it actually doesn't have that many keyboards on it. And it has a lot of guitars. Like all of Crazy Horse is on this record to some degree. Um, but what it doesn't have is the recognizable voice of Neil Young. With three exceptions, all the vocals are sung through a vocoder, which twists his voice into this robotic form and what comes out of this is a concept album of sorts about the impending computer age and then he does something that frankly I think feels sort of weird but like is totally in keeping with what I described earlier about Harvest which is he takes some of those songs from Island in the Sun the record that was recorded in Hawaii that Geffen didn't want and he uses them here so there's like three songs from 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 that in there and so it's a little uneven and it's unnerving to fans and of course that is very unnerving to the record label that just promised creative control but they've already rejected the other thing so they put this out now He tours on it, he uses songs from it in that weird sci-fi movie I told you about that he spent his own money to make. But Geffen says, okay, we get it, fine. We'll let it go this time. But they demand, next time, you better bring us a rock and roll album. And you know what? Sort of seems like that's not the best thing to say to Neil Young. Like, you know, sort of demanding something from Neil Young doesn't seem like the best communication style. So, and this is the stuff of legend, Young shows up with the retro, goofy BS record, Everybody's Rockin'. Okay, a couple things about this album. First off, it is rockabilly, and like half of it or some of it is covers, right? So it's he writes some rockabilly songs, and then he just does a bunch of crappy rockabilly songs. It clocks in at 25 minutes, and it is, again, not what anybody was expecting for Neil Young to do. Uh, So um, it gets the worst reviews of Neil Young's career. And it makes Geffen Records very, very mad. And so this, this is when Geffen Records in November of 1983 does in fact sue Neil Young for $3.3 million on the grounds that this record, Everybody's Rockin', and its predecessor, Trans, the synth pop record, were, quote, not commercial, and, quote, musically uncharacteristic of his previous recordings. Now, interesting note here. During this period, Neil Young wasn't doing interviews. He wasn't putting out any explainers around these weird ass records. He was just quiet. So, again, we talked about this with Dylan, right? There's no Twitter, there's no, you know, email list. He just is putting things out. And when people go and buy the record, they're confused as to what is happening. And so. There isn't an explanation for a long time as to what he was thinking, outside of just being eccentric, around trans or everybody's rocking. But a lot of things have come to light in the last 40 years. And it turns out that during this period, Neil Young has quite a bit happening, but not so much in the studio. There's a lot happening back at home. So we got to rewind a little bit and go further back. Instead of into Neil's profession, er, Yeah, professional life in the 70s. Let's go look at his personal life. So Young gets divorced from his first wife in 1970. And then he has a relationship with actress Carrie Snodgrass until 1975. The couple didn't marry, but they did have a kid. And this kid's name is Zeke. He's born in 72. And Zeke is diagnosed with kind of minor cerebral palsy shortly after he's born. It doesn't sound like it's super life-altering for Neil Young, but you know. That's tough. In 1974, Neil Young meets Peggy Norton, who was working as a waitress. And they do get married in 1978, and they have a son named Ben. And like his older half-brother, Ben also diagnosed with cerebral palsy. But his case? Super severe. It prevents him, to this day, from really moving or talking. So... From late 1980 to mid-1982, Neil Young is spending almost all of his time carrying out a therapy program for Ben. Ben can't speak. Ben can't talk about music. Ben can't really hum along to music or sing along to music. And Neil is drowning himself in music during this time. And he disclosed to almost no one at the time that he was doing this. But the songs that he had put on Reactor and that eventually end up on Trans were songs where he was playing with repetition and he was playing with sounds really in a way to appeal to Ben. And they all sort of related to the exercises that he was performing with Ben. In fact, work on trans begins in 1981, and it's a continuation of the reactor sessions. And it's got the whole crazy horse lineup. But Young buys two machines. He buys a synclavier and a vocoder. And Crazy Horse guitarist Pancho uh, San Pedro has said, quote, next thing we knew, Neil had taken all of the music off of the tracks that we'd recorded for this and overdubbed it with the vocoder and the weird sequencing, and put the synth on it. Young's direction was influenced by the experiments that Kraftwerk was doing, but more importantly, and probably more succinctly, he felt that when he distorted his voice, it was reflecting his attempts to communicate with Ben. Neil Young was using these new digital devices, to sort of try to have conversations with this human being he created who he couldn't communicate with. The songs he was writing were really all about the frustrations of this process. Ben and his parents couldn't always understand the words that they were saying to each other or the things, the noises. And so for this record, in most parts of it, Neil is making it so that the listeners... Can't understand the words. In fact, when he starts doing this and playing with this and creating these things, he doesn't plan on releasing it. But when Geffen didn't want that sunshiny album he recorded in Hawaii, he pulls out these tracks. This is him talking years later. At that time, Ben was simply trying to find a way to talk and to communicate with other people. And that's what trans is all about. And that's why on that record, you know that I'm saying something, but you can't understand what I'm saying. And that's exactly the same feeling I was getting from my son. Now, I don't know about you, I was floored by this story when I found it. And I'm sort of floored by how good trans is, even without this story. But with this story, when you know what he's doing and why he was doing, and that it was personal enough for him to not only do it, but to not explain himself, it's downright inspiring. I can't imagine taking this sort of risk having people completely reject it, eventually sue me partly because of it and just never explain it. Like, wouldn't it have been different? Wouldn't it have been different if he'd explained why he had done it? It's just, I mean, it's absolutely incredible. So what happens? There's this $3 million lawsuit and you know, can you imagine getting hit with a $3 million lawsuit while dealing with all of this stuff in your personal life and not really talking about it with anyone? Well, you may be able to guess what happens. If you've been listening to this episode, I can't believe Geffen Records didn't see this coming. What do you think Neil Young does? Um, he countersued for seven times the amount they sued him for. So they say they want three million he says he wants 21 million and his argument is this breach of contract he had been promised no creative interference from the label and they're clearly interfering with his creativity it ends up that the suit backfires against geffen and david geffen himself has to personally apologize to young they knew what they were getting into they just didn't like where it led them The year before the lawsuit, just after Young had signed to Geffen, his longtime manager, Elliot Roberts, was asked why Young changed record labels. And this is a quote, right? A year before. We had a much larger offer from RCA. But David Geffen and I used to be partners, and David has worked with Neil for a very long time. He totally relates to Neil as an artist, and he has no preconceived notions about him. He knows that he's capable of doing anything at any point at any time, and he will have the freedom to practice his art as he sees it. As opposed to when you make a deal where someone is paying you a bunch of money per album, you feel obligated to give them commercial music that they can sell large numbers of. Neil is not concerned with selling large numbers of his records. He's concerned with making records that he is pleased with. Unfortunately, they're not always going to be commercial. From the record company's point of view. And David Geffen relates to that. He knows Neil may do a country album. And then he may do an electric album. Because there's no rhyme or reason with Neil. It's what he's moved by. They were warned. <laughs> they, basically, Neil gave him exactly what he said he was going to give him. He puts out a few more records for Geffen. But by 87, he's back making records with Reprise. And he's still causing trouble to this day. He's alive and well. Uh, as old as he has gotten, he he's done all sorts of crazy stuff. He's recorded or created his own like digital music method. You may remember this from a few years ago. He also pretty recently wrote an open letter to Donald Trump. Uh, he and Crazy Horse actually have a new record that comes out literally next week, uh, December of 2021, uh, with a film of the same name. They're both called Barn, and his new film is directed by his latest wife, Daryl Hannah. And Ben, his son, he still can't talk or walk, but he tours with Neil Young to every show. If you want to read more about Neil Young, I've put a treasure trove of stuff into the show notes. Uh, Specifically, there is a very long piece about his film career, which is absolutely fascinating. There's some really good criticism specifically on trans um and how people perceive it now as to as opposed to how they perceived it then um so you can you can dig around and read quite a bit about this stuff it's it's quite the rabbit trail but I just got to say man, I have a new appreciation for Neil Young. Like I've been digging through Trans. I really like Trans and now it's making me want to go back and listen to all of these albums. But it's you know, he's like one of those artists like Dylan or even the Stones where there's just so much you sort of like have to pick a period and just dig in. But it's fascinating to watch a guy who approaches artistry in a in a way that is li- I mean, maybe the least commercial I've ever seen for someone as successful as he is. Right? And I mean, we see it like he literally goes head to head with a record label in a lawsuit where he basically calls their bluff um, because he has this artistic vision and he keeps telling them, I'm only going to do what I want. I'm not going to do what you want. I'm just going to try to find stuff. I'm just going to try to communicate with my kid through these tracks that I'm making. Go listen to Trance. Do yourself a favor. And then email the show. Uh, we are the story guys at gmail.com. We'd love to chat with you. Um, you know, if you've got feedback, if you've got a question you want us to dig into, we're happy to do that as well. And remember the Patreon. It's patreon.com slash rock and roll bedtime stories. Uh, hopefully, hopefully, I said this last week, but hopefully next week we'll have uh, Murdoch back in the saddle. Yeah, I'm working on a Christmas episode, a Christmas themed episode uh, that we're excited about. And until then, you know, of course, what we need you to do. We need you to keep telling stories rock and roll bedtime stories is a story guys production the show is produced and edited by brian Eichenberger. get more stories hear more podcasts and book the guys for your conference or house party at we are the story copyright boy have we got stories productions all rights reserved